0: the Dread Feminist with Loretta J. Ross. I'm your host this
1: evening. And I'm Dazon dixon Jallo. I am, am I
0: co-hosting this
1: evening? Yes, you are co-hosting. Awesome! Yeah, and I'm glad to be here.
0: For the past five years, I've been working on a new social justice practice and a book called Calling In the Calling Out Culture. I teach this online and you can find out more information at LorettaRoss.com. And I've taught it to students at Smith College. And I'm now going around the country helping people create a calling in culture within our human rights movement. I'm joined today by my best friend and, as I said, my co-conspirator, Daison dixon Jallo. Daison, why don't you introduce yourself and say why calling in is important to you and your work and why you're co-producing this new podcast with me.
1: Sure. Hey, Loretta. I am so excited. I'm awesomely pumped for this conversation. And, you know, calling in for me, you know how sometimes there's thoughts that you have and you meet up with somebody or you hear somebody talking about the same thing that was in your head, only they now give you language for it. And that's why calling in is so important to me because I have always believed, and I think it came from my parents, that reasoning is always a better solution to getting agreement than fighting or than arguing or that shouting or not listening to each other. And the other part is, is I think it's important for folks to be conscious and mindful of how we communicate with each other, especially when we're supposed to be on the same side of things, right? Or at least have the same vision or focus or aim for where we're trying to go. And that's what I think you have created with bringing to mind this thing called calling in. Because as wonderful and easy and comfortable it might be to call somebody out or to show your anger or to uh, disrupt something that we don't agree with, it doesn't always change things. It usually pushes people further back, less likely to engage or even give them more reason to keep coming for you even harder when that was not your aim in the first place with the calling out. So this is why calling in is important for me, because I think it's a new way. It's a, not even a new way, but it's a more organized way. And it has language to it and a process to it now that I think will actually strengthen our movement building.
0: Well, thank you for that. I know that I've been The subject of being called out, like when I signed this letter in Harper's Magazine saying that the call-out culture has gone too far and a lot of leftist professors and media people were getting called out or canceled or fired. And because other people on the right also signed this letter, co-signed the letter, then I got called out for being in the company of people who agreed that the call-out culture had gone too far. So I thought it was a bit ironic that people would criticize a letter calling out the calling out culture. Mm There was no sense of irony. And they even said, oh, Loretta, you must be pampering those privileged white men on the Upper East Side of New York who aren't in danger of being canceled. And of course, not being a New Yorker, I didn't even know what the Upper East Side of New York meant in what the caller (laughs) out was saying. But basically, I'm like, Wait a minute, I've been a radical black feminist activist for 50 years. I think my reputation can stand being looped together with J.K. Rawlings and whoever these privileged pampered Upper East Side men you're talking about. I'm fighting for the human right for everybody to be heard but also not for people to use their free speech rights as a weapon to punch down on people who are more vulnerable than them. And so this is why I'm excited. Now, I want to get to today's Dread Feminist question. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about what Dread Feminist is. This is a brand that I created about five or six years ago when I was noticing that the women's symbol, which, of course, is immediately recognizable by anybody who's a feminist like I am, had never been dreaded the girl didn't have any dreadlocks. And I was like, well, I can do that. So I started doodling and drawing some dreadlocks on it. And I said, well, that would be a neat kind of brand to embrace for myself. But I also wanted to spell it not D-R-E-A-D, but D-R-E-D, in tribute and honor of Dred Scott. You know, the famous Supreme Court decision that built in Jim Crow segregation and this whole three-fifths of a human thing And so Dread Feminist is my brand.
1: I am so loving how you talked about that personal experience of coming to calling in and, and the whole thing about calling out because I'm an old act upper, you know, I'm an alumna from those days of that was the only way we knew how to affect change in the AIDS movement. And, and after a while it gets old and it gets ineffective. And it also changes the meaning of it when, when white men are calling out high level leadership versus when black women or black gay men or black lesbians are calling out leadership right it doesn't have the same results and it doesn't even come with the same kind of safety that it even comes for comes with for white men so that's that I want to thank you for now the first thing people should always know about me is that I work hard so I can play harder right and I love that when you do your coursework you always remember to remind all of us that as hard as this work is and as uncomfortable and difficult it is we also have to remember to have joy and to find our joy and to revel in that joy in some ways and I'm very intentional about my joy I even say you know Uh, people ask me, well, how are you doing? And my answer is, well, I'm gonna be happy despite the bullshit. And what I mean by that is happiness is a choice. And I'm going to choose to find a way to be all right with it, even when it's not okay. And that's what I mean. So if that means that I've got to laugh, if that means I've got to turn up, if that means I need some loud music and some dancing, if that means I need to, you know, have my bourbon and a couple of shots with nothing else in it or other things that are going to alter my mood and my mind that I want to have that opportunity and to talk about some of those same issues, but in a much more relaxed, unpressurized way that still has meaning and that still has impact. It does not always have to be those complicated conflict worthy or ridden dialogues, it can actually be a conversation where we can disagree or agree and still have a good time while we're sorting through some of these issues.
0: Well, as dread feminists, we're always doing reasonings with each other, as the posse would say down in Jamaica. My mentor, Leonard Zeskin, when I was fighting the KKK at the National Anti-Klan Network, Center for Democratic Renewal, he was really calling out the fact that I used to walk around horribly overworked, too somber, because we're dealing with looking at all the awful things that human beings do to each other when you're fighting fascism. And of course, when you work at a civil rights organization, you're always remembering the people who died so that you could do the work. And particularly one time after we came back from Blakely, Georgia, where the fire department was being run by the KKK, And they had let a black home burn down two blocks from the fire station intentionally to kill the child in the fire. And so I was being so somber, so serious, working 16 hours a day. And Leonard finally said to me, he said, Loretta, lighten up. Fighting Nazis should be fun. It's being a Nazi that sucks. (laughs) And I had to laugh. But he was absolutely right. And so... It's people like him and others that I'll talk about during this show and others that have inspired me to party as hard as I work. I want to ask you today's dread feminist question. If and when someone does wrong, should they be called out or should they be forgiven or both? Now, I'm thinking of the Cosby Show because if it was on now, I'd probably be watching it. Would you watch it? What's your reaction to that question,
1: Dazon? First of all, it's a really good and somewhat difficult question because I am, you know, born in the mid, early 60s. And so I grew up on a lot of, just like so many people, grew up on a whole lot of exposure to Bill Cosby's comedy. I went to a Black college here in Atlanta. His daughter was a schoolmate of mine my sister was best friends with his son and so there's a personal even though he didn't know me personally but there's a personal connection to this human who ends up being in this really dangerous place and completely antithetical to all this that i believe in right from my dread feminism and from a sexual and reproductive health space and from a women's rights and safety space right and it's hard for me to disconnect all of who a person is from something that they've done that is just egregious as if they're not a whole human being so it's interesting because I think at the beginning of all of this the outward list the outward in me was, I'm, I'm in the believing of the Me Too movement. I am of the believing that people in places of power who wield that power to hurt other people should not be in those positions, right? I do believe that. And if they have done other things in their past or in their craft, does that mean that I can't participate in that either? Or am I most likely going to be able to talk about this behavior, call out this behavior, and even make sure that they are held accountable for that behavior, right? But if that art, let me say this, if that art of his had other people engaged who have nothing to do with this other thing that he's done, if it's ensemble, yeah, I'm going to watch it. So how about this? I'm going to complicate it. I may not ever play another Bill Cosby album of his stand-up. I might not ever watch Bill Cosby himself show again. But will I not watch A Different World? Because that comes from my culture. I mean, it was about my campus, right? And it had all of these other amazing Black folk who still earn a lot of their income from the royalties, from the work they did not for the fact that his name was on it, I'm not not going to support those people. So I'm, I'm going to use Brian Stevens's approach to think about every human being who does incredibly terrible things that they have to be held accountable for them. And we have to remember that that person is always going to be more than the worst thing that they've ever done and then make my decisions accordingly.
0: Well, that's a good one. And that's a good way to look at it. I have to honestly say, I might even play a Bill Cosby album if I had one, because when you look at our modern standards of what is racist and what is sexist and what is homophobic and what is transphobic, I'm sure everybody I loved in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s represented all of some or most of those categories. <laughs> and yeah. so I'm not going to not look, listen to Red Fox if I had suddenly found out that he was homophobic or sexist at the end. I'm not going to suddenly stop listening to Bill Withers even though I knew while I was listening to Bill Withers that he had a domestic violence uh, complaint against his wife. I mean, his wife did a a domestic violence complaint against him.
1: Right. And admit it
0: when he... Yeah, but but then there's other people like R. Kelly. His music wasn't good enough for me to want to play it anyway, so (laughs) I, I don't feel quite that way about it. But right. I remember Rick James. Rick James used to get women high and do horrible things to him because he was an S&M guy. Yep. And that kind of ruined Rick James's music for me. But then I liked it when MC Hammer sampled his music and said, I can't touch it. Do, 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 You know, mm-hmm. and so it's like, it's really confusing for me to say, can I cancel somebody's art? Or is there a really deeper question of, do they do that great art simply because they're complicated and yeah. complex people? And would we be deprived of the art if we didn't accept the fact that these are deeply flawed and human being giving us some of the greatest joy in the world? And
1: can we also forgive ourselves for being a little complicated, right? So let me come back around and say, another reason which is probably more powerful than this particular reason is that I probably enjoyed, for example, Cosby's humor when I was a kid and everything I listened to was curated by my parents or censored by my parents. So it had to be clean, right? His comedy at this age for me, eh, it is not edgy. It is not radical enough. It ain't even got no cussing in it. It's just not my kind of comedy. And that might be more powerful even than this choice but what i would say is out of respect is that if there's a someone important to me who finds it offensive i'm not going to defend why i should keep playing it because i'm going to respect whatever triggers any hurt or pain or trauma in that person that i care about that i'm going to respect that more i'm not going to defend this person's art at the uh, expense of hurting The person that I care about that's personally uh, connected to me. So I think that we should be able to have this conversation a way of looking at all of the layers and all of the complications that this calling out and canceling thing calls in and that it's not necessarily one way or the other. You asked when should you and when should you not. There are times and there are places when that calling out and that canceling might absolutely be necessary because it saves lives. Because if we don't, then that person will continue doing what they do and they have to be stopped. Now, does that mean they can't make any new work? That's what that means. That means if they don't so-called show remorse and show actual change, or do things to repair and restore what damage they have caused, then absolutely I don't think that they should be given another public platform. Their past work, I might not put in the same category, because it's just not that
0: simple. Well, you make a complicated issue out of everything, and I love that about your deep thinking. I know that I wasn't that drawn to Cosby's albums, because I was a Richard Pryor, Red Fox, Pig, Meek, Markham, yes. Moms Mably, Crowd. My family had these records and we kids used to sneak and play them when mom and dad weren't around. So we Did got exposed to all the raunchy stuff. Here comes the judge, you know, uh-huh. that we weren't supposed to be listening to. But we certainly enjoyed and we knew we couldn't say those words around mom and dad or even reveal that we had heard them. But right now, there's a whole controversy over the N-word. And of course, if you listen to anything that Richard Pryor said, you're going to encounter the N-word. But his daughter, interestingly, Elizabeth Pryor, is saying that we should cancel the N-word, even though that's one of the hallmarks and signatures of her father's comedy. And so when Liz did this TED Talk on canceling the N-word, she actually made me rethink using it myself, even though I'd grown up with it and normalized it as any Black kid who's trying to be a little edgy would. But what do you think about that? That should we cancel Richard Pryor because he uses the N-word or is that going too far? How do we land on that one?
1: Interestingly, I another complication because language is fluid. Language changes... With time, with culture, with technology, with conditions, with experiences. And nobody in my world or in my universe is more chameleonic with the English language than Black folk. And that we, you know, use things like the N word to so-called reclaim it, right? That's what I understood, that we didn't first name ourselves that, or if we did, that it ended up getting used uh, against us in dehumanizing and disrespectful ways. And that I think what complicates using the N-word is that it's not universal, right? I, I think if we uh, are going to use it, for example, then we've got to find a way that it's okay for anybody to use it. Oh, no. Right. Oh, no. And that's not ever going to happen. I'm not saying I support that. I'm just saying if we're looking at equal justice, if we're looking at equity in the real sense of it, right, at some point, if we say this is okay for us, then that means it's okay for us. That means it's okay for us to say it. it, it's okay for us to hear it, it's okay for us to hear it from anyone. Otherwise, it's either okay or not okay. I, I, See, I'm do, not,
0: uh-uh, I can't I, go there.
1: I, I understand cool. that. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm saying it's a question. It's a complication for me. And so, because I'm just not comfortable with the word at all, even when it was you know a regular thing in the adult conversations around me, or even now around friends, it's, it's almost like It's a trigger whenever I hear it, and I try really hard not to say it at all. And when I do, oftentimes it's usually because it's in one of those safest places in the world where everybody else is saying it and it's okay for everybody who is saying it. And even then it's usually to point out something and not to actually just use it in conversation. So it's real complicated for me, Loretta, but I do think that we uh, have to be able to have that conversation and that anybody who does use it and then they're offended when somebody else uses it needs to be able to have a conversation in a calling in kind of way to help people understand why it's not usable. I think they're saying words like the B word or the C word or the P word, which are all things that sit uncomfortably with some people and for other people, it's a normal part of the nomenclature. It's in our music, it's in our conversations, it's in the beauty shop, barbershop, nail shop talk. It's everywhere, but I wouldn't participate in that or use those words.
0: See, I think that every group, particularly groups that have been marginalized and oppressed has a self-deprecating way to talk about themselves. Yes, Because I have Jewish friends and they have words that they use amongst themselves and I don't know how they react to those words but I know as a non-Jewish person I would never use those words mm-hmm. but I'm okay with them using them for themselves and wouldn't ever want to appropriate that word just because I feel like I'm getting cheated out of, of, out of the use of a word that in my mouth would not be the same it could actually be wounding. I have a lot of friends that have these in-group ways. All my queer friends call each other a whole bunch of names that I wouldn't use because I'm not in the queer community. I'm an ally to the queer community. And if you want to really get lit, let's go talk about all the different ways trans people talk about themselves. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I'm glad to know that y'all have a secret language that I don't need to participate in because I like the way ta Coates puts it. He says that it's not a question of whether you want to use that word. The question is, why would you want to use it? Yeah, right. What is it achieving for you to use that word? And we can never ignore power disparities. So saying the N word out of the mouth of a black person is totally different, even if the most white Uyghur person in the world, because we call them Uyghurs because they always want to adopt black mm-hmm. culture and. Mm-hmm. And, and live life as if they were born to the wrong mother or something. But if they choose to use it, it has a different impact. It has a different effect. And so the real question isn't the word itself, but what's in your heart making you want to use that word? And Understood. why would you want to use it as a spear point word to hurt somebody if you have another choice? And I'll just close and give turn the mic back over to you when it comes to reading, let's say period poetry that has the N word in it. Well, if you're a white professor who's trying to teach poetry and you choose to use that poem pedagogically, I'm gonna always ask what made you choose that poem and why did you think you could do so without consequences? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. it's always going to be loaded coming out of the mouth of a white person. There is no good way for white people to say the N word. So you should just take it out of your category, out of your lexicon, the same way I would take every bad derogative things I've heard about Mexican-Americans out of my lexicon, because I don't have that lived experience. And yet they will fight back and say, well, if you get to say it, I get to say it. And I'm saying, no, because we have different lived experiences. And I know that word in, in the mouth of someone from my community, does not have the power to wound me the way it is coming so casually from your lip. So what do you think about that? So I absolutely
1: hear you and I could probably be changed of mind with this one exception. And it's a question more than a a conclusion. And that is, is there a distinction between using that kind of self-deprecating language or nomenclature that was created by us, for us, versus the origin of something that comes from someplace that was so negative and dehumanizing and and denigrating and hurtful. And then we have appropriated it for our own use or power or to disempower the word or whatever. I understand all of that argument. But in some ways, if it's a word that the origin of it comes from that hurtful, hateful place versus something that we created or come up with that is ours, that comes from a prideful place, a uh, loving space, even, or even in a place where we're denigrating ourselves, but it's ours to do, then Is that a distinction or not? I mean, there are some words that originated within a given culture that others have misappropriated and used against us. And then there are things that have been created and used against us that we then adopt and appropriate so that it doesn't have the same impact for pain. I'm not sure, but I think it's a question worth talking about.
0: Yeah, I'm not that concerned with the origin of the word because who knows the, the etymology of words. I mean, there's somehow some that we do know and then a lot that we don't know. I'm talking about what's in the heart of the person choosing to use a word, because yeah. if I think they're doing it to hurt me, I'm going to call them out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to call them out in a quick beat heartbeat. Or if I care about them and I have a relationship with them, I may try to call them in because I'm going to ask, Uncle Frank, what was going on with you in your heart when you chose to use that word? Mm -hmm. And I actually had an experience of this because, as you know, I'm from San Antonio, Texas. And one thing that's peculiar about San Antonio, as well as many other Texas towns, is that Black people in San Antonio were used as the buffer class to keep Mexican-Americans out of the economy. So growing up in San Antonio... I saw signs that said, no Mexicans need apply, no Mexicans allowed, no Spanish allowed to be spoken here, not no blacks, no colored, none of that. And so when you're in that peculiar position, the black folks in San Antonio ingest a whole lot of white supremacy and particularly they directed towards the Mexican Americans. So I was at a family reunion And one of my older brothers who manages a lot of of Mexican-Americans or Chicanos at his job used this vile effective about Mexican-Americans. And I looked at him and I literally said, Charles, do you love me? And he's my big brother. So he said, yes, of course I love you. And do you realize that every time you say that word, you're hurting me? And he looked at me in confusion because he couldn't understand why I would be hurt by a term he was using for Mexican-Americans. And so I said, well, could you do me a favor? I don't know if I can control what you think about Mexican-Americans, but can you at least not say that thing around me anymore? Mm-hmm. And he didn't. And you know, that was like 40, 30, 40 years ago. And I've never had Charles say anything like that in my presence again. I don't know if I changed his... Heart, but by calling him in instead of calling his him out, I changed his practices around yeah. me. And that's the way you can deal with people using these words.
1: Sorry about yeah. that. We have a overlap in, in the feedback, but I I hear exactly what you're saying. Because here's where I would take another example. Because you know, I love traveling, and I especially love meeting, being with and making family with, you know, my people in Africa. And there's a family that I'm very, very close with. And they're all younger than me. It's a lot of them. They're extremely gregarious, outgoing, fun-loving people. We love all the music. We have a good time. They're very educated and well-read. And they use the N-word like regular English.
0: Well, all the people in Africa who were taught English were taught the N-word to describe Black Americans? Well,
1: I don't know if it's all of them were taught the N-word because these are folks who are millennials and younger also. And so a lot of their connection to the language is from pop culture, from the music, from the okay. videos and movies, and you know what shows up on television and in those spaces. It's not necessarily... Uh, taught to them because that's how they're supposed to identify. They call each other that, not us, right? So I had to have that same conversation and say, uh, do you even know where this is used and how it's been used and why it can be painful for some of us and why it's painful for me? And that even though I know you're not meaning in it that way, and you're not calling me out my name, as we would say, it's like, fingernails on a chalkboard when I hear it. And it's it just, it's not a good one. And then we have a whole conversation about their understanding beyond the school books or the documentaries about somebody who lives this uh, end of the Jim Crow era, but still a racial uh, strife life in the United States and the role that that word plays even up to right now. And having that conversation to understand my story, to understand the history of it, to understand you know, when and how it's used and all of that, I can hear them in different settings where they're talking with each other and it's still the same thing. They're using it because we're all in the same WhatsApp group. But if I'm in it, it's not used. And I understand how they're at least recognizing and respecting me around that. So I think it's actually even curiouser to find out from folks who are, especially those who are younger, who still use the full word and not the euphemism of the N-word and how much they do or don't understand how it's used and why, for example, they accept it sometimes when white folks say the word because they're their peers because they're listening to the same music, they're singing the same lyrics. And I know that there are places where there's jokes made about it, but there are places where I use the example of I stopped because it was doing me no good calling out young men in my neighborhood for wearing their pants below their cheek butts. I mean, their butt cheeks. And You know, even having a conversation about, do you actually know where that originated from and how humiliating and dehumanizing that was as an act for people in prison? And it doesn't matter to them because that's not their lived reality with that particular style of clothing. I think it's also not logical because if you need to run, you're going to hurt yourself. But other than that, (laughs) right? Other than that, I I still think it's important that instead of, for example, being the old lady in the neighborhood that calls out somebody for dressing a certain way, it's more important to have a conversation about why and about, you know, sharing some intergenerational conversation about it and hopefully impacting some change in both directions, but It's still going to be one of those things where I'm not going to not say anything because there are also a lot of young people who have just never been called in on what could be problematic for them in choosing that kind of uh, fashion or that kind of style of clothing.
0: Well, I had an example of that at my family union, because, you know, I I don't have a filter on my mouth. And so I had (laughs) like two or three of my younger relatives walking around with the butt cheek pants on. And so being the slutty crone that I am, I said, listen, baby boy, you come past me with those pants on down like that. I'm gonna pull them down and see what you pack it. They looked at me because, you know, uh, she's an elder. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But guess what? Every boy at that family reunion pulled his pants up because they couldn't take the risk. That crazy Aunt Loretta's gonna pull them down. <laughs> Wait,
1: I I know this is probably as as far off the topic as what you were saying just now, but I saw a recent uh, TikTok video where uh, there's the black mom who's talking about how she's tired of this grown son of hers who comes by every day to eat out of her refrigerator, just eats her out of house and home. He has his own place. He lives and he has his own job or all of that. And so one day, she just came, she, she knew it all the time. She knows, knows what time he, she just walked across the kitchen. Like he wasn't even there all butt naked from the head to the toe. And he dropped everything out the refrigerator and just <laughs> ran right back out the house. Cause he was like, mom, she's like, you in my house, like, hey, <laughs> you're going to come by whenever you want to, this is what you're going to get. So I do think that there's something to be said in, in your approach, which cuts across that. Uh, line of respectability that they were just disarmed by. Right. And I loved it I because she sure disarmed that kid. He probably never came back without calling her and making an appointment and or saying, can I take you to lunch or dinner, ma? I mean, you
0: know, it's just so I don't have to go through that ever again. It's hilarious. Well, sometimes our kids protest that they know their parents too well, and I can see one of those situations come up. So I had to wrap this question, this conversation back to the original question. Mm -hmm. When people have done horrific things, because I'm thinking of people like Woody Allen and Mm -hmm. Roman Polanski and uh, even, uh, tell me the guy from Minnesota who was the senator, Al Franken, Mm -hmm. uh, do things that they should be held accountable for what should they do to be restored? Because I have a theory that if you have bad news to say about yourself, run and tell it. And that way you can control the narrative. And I think what got most of those people I just named in trouble was that they kept trying to double down and deny that they had Mm -hmm. done any harm. And so then that just made people whip up into a frenzy to hold them even more accountable and be more punitive towards them. So what do you think? If you've done something wrong, how should you handle that so that you can make your peace with your critics and move forward with your life? Well, I absolutely, you
1: know me, I'm one of those that I totally believe in truth and transparency. And so I do think that the truth may not have the easier circumstances or consequences, but it's certainly easier to live with. And so I I truly believe that I'm like you that first, and it's not even a matter of getting out in front of the story for you know damage control or for reputation's sake, but it is actually about grace, gratitude, and forgiveness, right? It's really about being honest enough to hold and stand in your own a truth in your own experiences and your own failings and your own flaws, and then being able to be willing to be held accountable for it. So you got to be, re- you got to have that first and foremost, but it also depends on the agreements or the level around the, re- not just the remorse, but the restoration, the reparations. I mean, what are you going to do to not do this again and prove it and show it. And how are you going to repair the pain that you have caused? And how are you going to restore what belief people had in you? Because the only way to do that, you can't tell people to believe in you. You got to show them why you are believable and give it time, right? I have a, I have a deep feeling that a lot of these people who actually have been canceled, who are, aside from breaking the law, who have not yet been able to do justice because now if you are breaking the law and you're violating someone's rights or creating pain, then that accountability factor is real important. And if you're not gonna tell the truth then it's hard for you to, to be accountable. I say this thing all the time. If you just tell me the truth, then I have choices. I could choose to let it go. I could choose to do everything I can to lock you up forever. I could choose to ask you to step down from your position. I could choose to ask you to redo that programming and have a message in it that actually saves people like me and not hurts people like me. But if you don't tell me the truth, you have all the power. And that leaves me in a position without the agency and the power to help you be held accountable and to affect change.
0: then they closed off the options because all you have, the only choice you seem to have is to counsel them, to call them out and to to do it in a very public way. that at least you mitigate the future harm that they can do. Or, 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 which is the other thing that people really want
1: is to not just hold you accountable and call you out, but to inflict pain because you have inflicted pain on me. So if you're inflicting pain, then you should be able to take some pain. And I'm feeling the moral authority to be the one to deliver
0: it. Well, I didn't like the person I'd become when I was indulging in the call-out culture. So I'm going to be really reserved in my intentional infliction of pain on other people. Even if I think they deserve it, I don't think I'm worthy enough to be their judge, jury, and executioner because I've got my own flaws and stuff. And that's another Brian Stevenson quote about right. are we worthy of the being the ones to judge that's other right. people like that? And that's a real question. But I do think that if you are committing harm against somebody and someone calls you out and you do own it and you do apologize for it and you do try to make reparations for the harm and mm-hmm. change your behavior, There's still another problem. No matter how sincerely you apologize, even the attempt to apologize may be read as insincere. To be accountable may be uh, demonized because, well, you're capable of doing this harm. How can I know you won't do it in the future? How can I know you're not just playing us, that you're just trying to get away with something or cover it up with your radical language and the fact that you know the five steps of making a good apology. I mean, there is a lot of ambiguity in how we deal with the calling in and the calling out culture. But I think the main thing to remember is that the people we're calling out are as complicated as we are. And we're going to have to learn a lot more about what forgiveness and grace looks like Mm -hmm. so that they don't leave their dirty fingerprints on our souls because we let them have the power to hurt us mm-hmm. and to really keep, a, keep, keep our minds engaged with what they did. Because I don't like walking around like a victim looking for the next place I'm gonna get hurt at. That just doesn't work for me.
1: I love that. And I do think though, and this, I hope this is one of the conversations in the future is from an activist standpoint, for whom when you're fighting on behalf of social change or social justice or a given hurt community of people, that calling out and canceling, whether it's individual or group wise, might actually be the aim and the solution to getting to the sol- to solving the problem or to ending the human rights violations, right? So for, as, an, as for example, an act upper, I may not have agreed for example with being the one to throw blood on a sitting president right because of how we feel about their inability to engage in the addressing the HIV crisis at that time which was at the height of people dying within you know 6 days to 6 weeks of a diagnosis with nobody showing, you know, national concern for those folks. And in that instance, yeah, I think the calling out is appropriate, especially because it's about a people who are making decisions about other people's lives or ignoring those decisions and using their power to not help. I don't know when it would be right to go after the individual and cancel them versus to go after, for example, the entire party or the entire body of decision-makers who are making the wrong decisions in terms of saving people's lives or offering the dignity and respect that people deserve. I think it's absolutely appropriate to be calling out, for example, the behavior that's been going on around these elections and and all of the falseness, all of the absolute uh, pathological inanity of the lawsuits and the the false declarations of tampered with voting, because we know that the effort itself is to disenfranchise the Black vote. Yes, I want to call somebody out for that. And yes, I want to cancel them, because calling them in about that is not the way that's going to get equal rights to the voting booth. It just it hasn't worked and it isn't working now. And if calling out is the way to get it to work right now and to cancel, which means to vote out somebody or to get them removed from their job so that they're not able to continue destroying democracy. I'm not sure that I want to be calling in right then. Calling out is what's going to draw attention to it. What do you think?
0: Well, I think that how we do the work is as important as the work that we do. Right. And I have to just come at that from a human rights perspective, mm-hmm. because I actually don't like the fact that in defense of Black Lives Matter, for example, that we protest at people's homes and scare their children mm-hmm. and make them wonder whether or not they're safe even within the sanctity of their homes. Right. But that's what the Klan does. That's what the white supremacist movement does. And then when I saw the people, the pro-Trump people, surrounding the homes armed of mm-hmm. the people who were election officials, then I was affirmed that that should not be one of our tactics because I don't ever want to resemble my enemy that closely. Right. Even if I'm doing it for the right reasons. But there's a lot of controversy because there's a voice that says in our movement, well, if if they're going to put children in cages on the border, why should they sleep safely safely? and have their children sleep sleep safely in their homes. Mm. And so they have a more transactional tit-for-tat kind of way of seeing human rights and justice, where I'm more saying that, no, we can't dishonor the framework. We can't violate people's human rights trying to protect human rights. But most people, particularly younger people, don't wanna hear that fine-tuned analysis about what tactics you choose.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: there well,
1: we are. <laughs> I, I would close this with the memory though, the fond memory of calling somebody out was when back, I think it was in around 1991, when ACT UP in protest of yet another, you know, racist homophobic decision that uh, Senator Jesse Helms was involved in, Late,
0: unlamented,
1: Jesse Helms. Act up. Went to his house. Covered his entire house with a condom. I would support that. Okay. Because it's a different. It was. It was funny. It sent a different message. There were no children in the house to be suffocated. But I, I hear exactly what you're saying in terms of. It's sort of like even when you're running for, for office. It's like. It's about me. I'm the only person putting myself out here. I'm the only person who is willing to be held accountable for the things and the positions I'm taking, my family, my children, my pets, my home. My personal stuff is off limits. I I don't disagree with you on that one. Well, I'll just close by... Enjoying the condom on the house. I'm going to have to enjoy that.
0: (laughs) That does sound like a funny image, but I'm going to close by saying that in the 1990s, when I was monitoring hate groups, the Oklahoma City building had just been bombed by Timothy McVeigh. And so that meant I was in the media a lot. And my mom and dad always had an unlisted phone number, but that didn't stop someone from the Texas militia calling my mom and inviting her to a meeting of the Texas militia so that they could persuade my mom that they weren't a racist organization. I have to honestly say that sent a chill down my shoulder, down my back because my mom and dad didn't sign up to do anti-clan fighting. Only I had. And so when they brought that struggle to my family's home, that was a different thing because then they were threatening in not so subtle ways my family and their privacy. Now they didn't get the reaction that they thought they were going to get cuz my dad is a was a uh, retired military weapons specialist. And so once I told dad what has happened, he started populating the yard with Smith and Wesson signs saying, I dare you to come forward because he was a member of the NR National Rifle Association too. But I still had to wonder where I drew the line. And that was one of the things that made me want to draw the line around taking it to people's homes and their private spaces, no matter whether it's funny, whether it's threatening or anything, I don't think it suits the dignity of the work that I want to do. But I need to close this show by first of all saying, if you want to continue to listen to Dread Feminists, please check out my website, LorettaRoss.com. That's LorettaRoss.com. As I said, I teach online classes on calling in the calling out culture for five dollars per lecture. Uh, With a sliding scale from five to fifty dollars, and thank y'all for listening, and thank you, Dazon, for joining me on this wonderful journey. Thank you for having me. See you next time.
1: And you've been listening to Dread Feminist with Loretta J. Ross. I had a great time, and I hope you did too. I'm Dazon. Be sure to tune in next time. And in the meantime, you can follow Loretta at LorettaJRoss.com and on all the socials.